0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest.
1: And I'm Shane Harris. This week, ex-CIA officer John Cipher, the spy who went to Hollywood.
0: I don't know about you, but in, in my shorter than yours <laughs> career, yeah, no I problem. didn't have a lot of senior officers running divisions who were doing secret plots to assassinate analysts overseas. <laughs> it, it just no. doesn't happen that often. If
2: That uh, often? <laughs> right? Doesn't happen at all. <laughs> You know, a lot of times espionage films get put in the action genre and the thriller genre because you know, with the blowing stuff up makes makes money. And
1: teenage boys like to see things blow up,
2: and so we want to try to move into the sort of stories that are much more sort of human factor. Some really crappy stuff gets made in this space, and oftentimes early on, we'd be going to our sort of manager, our people we work in Hollywood, and say, "Look, how in the world did this thing get made?" And they say, "Well, if a big star reads a book." And is enamored with the book, even if it's crappy. It'll get made. It'll get made.
1: <laughs> John Cipher, welcome to Chatter.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: You are here in the studio. And this is a first, by the way, that David Priest and I are together in the studio doing an episode.
2: A joint
0: interview it's it's been done before it's i understand but it's not happened. on chance so you guys are gonna podcast.
2: team up on me so the plan totally. originally i think was to have alex finley on as well so a couple ops officers against a couple nerds and we had a chance Ooh. of actually winning that well but i tell now, you what I tell you, I'm going to get destroyed.
0: You 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 just disappointed everybody because they wanted to hear from Alex, and now they, they've got you. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. You but really I tell set you, set yourself up. For a while. I know what she was going to say. She, so I could just yeah, she could not her. join us, um, unfortunately, at the last minute. So uh, Shane and I have committed to uh, have her back on another yeah, time. She'll come back on. But we have Sorry the pleasure of having She's you, funny. John, and we're going to talk to you about a, a whole bunch of things, and we can always make fun of Alex along the way, and she can respond in her episode. In her tweets. Yeah, I yeah. like
1: this idea, though, that we should reframe this rather than as, like, the, uh, the the two ops officers take on the geeks. I think it should be the ops officer and the analyst moderated by the journalist.
0: We could do that, but what we've discovered over time, uh, you know, John and I co-wrote an article a couple of years ago around the time of the Helsinki uh, debacle with with Trump, um, we actually agree on a whole lot more than we disagree on. So we will publicly spar just to have some fun over the, the traditional tropes of analysts and, and operators. Um, but more often than not, we, we see eye to eye on things, which isn't as fun as picking on Shane Harris. So I think the two of us <laughs> should game up. Well, I try not to him. admit it,
2: but when I came into the agency, I came in to be an analyst. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I did. How did
1: you get converted to the, the dark side? So or when the light, I came out of graduate
2: like. school, you know, I applied to the agency and applied to the State department and a number of other places. I had worked at State INR as an internship between two years when I was up at, in graduate school. and you know back then when you went interviewed, they would try to interview and talk to you about joining the clandestine service the sort of as being mm-hmm. outside organization, but they wouldn't tell you much. And so I was asked these questions and I was like, listen, I, I know what analysts do. you know I might do this for a few years and go get a PhD or something. So I got it. But then it was when I came in, I guess my testing at all said I could do either, which was lucky, because there were some people in the class that wanted to switch, and they didn't right. let them switch over. Right. And so I never actually worked as an analyst. I came in and sort of learned more about the agency. I, you know, I didn't think I wanted to spend my career overseas. And as I came in and, you know, friends were inside, were in the sort of the spy side of the business, I, I, I moved over, and then 30 years later, I was
1: <laughs> out. So do you, like, fill out a form? I mean, how do you do that? How do you switch? <laughs>
2: That's a good question. I have to try to remember back. So, yes, you have to go through some sort of process, and they they actually have to make a determination whether you can do it. And so, as David knows, when you come in, there's, you know, you take every possible bizarre test and psychological thing. And so there's some sort of assessment whether, you know, they think you can do one or the other. And so, uh, you know, I was able to do it without much pain.
0: It has also varied over the CIA's history. Sometimes it's very clear, you are hired for this track, that's what you're in, and then, once you've done it for a while, you can cross over. Sometimes, there have been times in training where people are brought in together and they have all the initial training together, and then at the end of that process, they select which route they're going to take. And that's where you can have people like John Brennan, who can say, well, you know, I was brought in, and you know, learned the operations at the beginning, and then I became an analyst because that was during one of those periods, I believe, when there was that joint training initially for some of the fundamentals to be taught he, to everyone. He's
2: lying to you. He came yeah. through to go through the ops course and failed the ops course and oh, therefore oh. had to become an analyst. Still took it, though. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Still <laughs> took the course. A certain portion of it or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. It's no, like that, when that, someone said say they were
0: enrolled at Harvard. They, they're not saying they got a degree. He did much better,
2: frankly, than whether, if he had been a, a crappy ops officer. He did much better going the route he did. And yes, you're right. It's changed over time. I taught at the farm and sometimes, you know, different categories would be down there, work going through. Sometimes they would change it. So they went through part of it. Sometimes, you know, they would, you'd have to go through this real formal process to change what you want to do. And I think 9-11 changed a lot of that because, you know, very quickly analysts and reports officers and ops officers all really had to sort of work together because they were trying to do something they haven't done before.
1: Well, we're going to talk about your career post-CIA uh, and spies going to Hollywood, and you have been working in Hollywood and talking to Hollywood types. Um, but just for everyone to get situated before we do that, give us the highlights of your career. Most people, I think, probably who know you and know your writing now and who follow you on social media know about your, your career history in Russia and on Russia issues, but kind of give us the, the synopsis of your time in the agency.
2: Well, sure. Well, like I said, I came in to originally be an analyst, switched over into the espionage side of the house. It used to be called the Director of Operations and then the Clandestine Service, and I think it's Director of Operations again. Right, they went back. <laughs> As things do in the bureaucracy. And so I spent most of my career overseas. I, my first assignment was back when the Cold War was on and the Soviet Union existed, and I, I took a year of Finnish language to go to Finland <laughs> and was in Finland for three years. When, this, when the wall came down and, you know, when the Baltic states were, you know, moving out from under Soviet Union. And so it was a fascinating time to be there, and then came back and, and took Russian and went to Moscow for a couple of years. Um, you know, it's a whole different sort of kettle of fish, how you operate in those those different places, and we can talk about that, but we also don't need to. And then as the Balkan Wars were going on, I went then to Belgrade and Yugoslavia and worked uh, down there for several years, went back into our Uh, training center uh, training new officers um, to come into the clandestine service and then went to uh, I was the deputy of our Russia house our Russia group that does our sort of worldwide Russian espionage operations Moscow plus everywhere in the world where we try to target and follow Russian issues and then went back to Belgrade after the war after the bombing which was a bizarre and crazy crazy thing and then uh, I worked Domestically, a, a, a tour in the United States with the FBI, and when I was in Russia group, I worked a lot with the FBI on counter espionage issues. I was there for the Hansen arrest, among other things, and the the illegals, you know, running of the illegals that were arrested in 2010. And then uh, I went to Jakarta, Indonesia, after after being the deputy of our of our um, organization at our headquarters that runs a domestic op- operations, working with the bureau and. Department of Energy and, and business leaders and such, and um, and then to Pakistan before I retired.
1: What was it like being in Russia house after the Soviet Union had just fallen? Like the main enemy is dead. So like you're working in the beating heart of operations against the main enemy, but they're gone.
2: Well, so yes, yeah, so I was in Moscow right after sort of the Soviet Union had fallen. And you know, looking back, what's interesting about that is that the special services, security services, the KGB, if you will, didn't really fall and change, and so you know what we see now with Vladimir Putin. The reason, sort of, he and his cronies have stayed in power is because they knew where the money was. They were running the illicit networks overseas, the smuggling networks, the banking, the all of those type of things, and so they essentially maintained their power. And so it was funny in the early '90s working in Moscow. Everybody had these hopes that things were going to change, and it was a wild west. And American businessmen and finance people were coming running in there, and. You know, young guys were coming in to go after Russian women and blah, blah, blah. It was a crazy time. But the security services, the KGB operations against us and against the embassy didn't change at all. So our surveillance, we, you know, and it's not hyperbole to say we had surveillance 24 hours a day. It was followed everywhere we went. People tracked behind us, had our houses bugged. Video, audio, that, that, you know, games played against us. Everybody we talked to would be then interviewed and tried to be played back against us. That stuff didn't change at all, even though the rest of the society was going through rapid change. Which
0: is fascinating because you talk to diplomats from that time. Uh, if they served in Moscow in the 70s and 80s and then they came back in the mid-90s, that was a different ball game for them because they were actually having interactions with their counterparts. They were hosting visits in the United States. They were able to travel more in the in the Russian Federation than they had been in the Soviet Union. But with the station it was still largely the same game.
2: Well, and it's true they were talking to all sorts of people and traveling, but they were also being followed. They just weren't trained to know right. whether they were being followed. And so, you know, you know it depends what the intention was of that they you know the Russians are, are very sort of cynical and conspiratorial and therefore never sort of gave up that interest in those things so it was it was it was a fascinating time and there was you know real chances for change and you know there's a variety of things that sort of changed that but ultimately when sort of an ex-kGb officer came back in and brought his sort of power ministry people back in around him that Sort of solidified. Did you
1: know away. that when Putin came back into power, knowing his background, did you think, "Oh yeah, this is going to backslide"? Is no, that, was that the tell for you? I don't
2: think so. I, I you know, well, early on there was a few things because then I worked, I was at our headquarters, Russia group at the time when he came back in, and there was a couple of things that were really interesting because he was a, you know, and worked in espionage like we did. There were some things that upset him where he would call Clinton or he would call the President of the United States to yell about some low-level spy case and you can just imagine those phone calls where our president's like what, 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 I don't even understand what you're talking about but to Putin these were like you know really important and really angered him and so yeah essentially you, you take the guy out of the service but you can never take the service out of the guy
1: hmm. it does seem like that's the caricature of him too which is largely accurate that he still agrees a kind of a, he's a career spy in that way so guess, yeah. yeah so so then okay so tell us what you're doing now i mean you you go and and how do you get from Leaving the agency to then working with people who are creating fictional portrayals of the life that you lived <laughs> for your entire career, yeah. and probably more often than not getting it wrong.
2: Well, that's right. Well, like any career, you know, it goes through sort of weird machination. So I, when I left the agency, you know, a lot of people, when they leave the agency, they just change the color of their badge and they come back and do contract work. But you don't have to do all the management and stuff that's often painful as you become more senior. You don't have agency. to write performance reviews yeah, anymore, no, just, John. Exactly. And have hard discussions with people saying, you know, you're not allowed to, whatever. <laughs> as, as I drink this rye, well, I might <laughs> better stories. But, but there's a whole lot of people who do
0: that, that simply, you know, turn around, come in, and it's consulting, maybe it's advising on an operational plan, maybe it's helping with training, but they're they're doing largely the same work. Why why but, did
2: but you? often lower level. So essentially and you, right. you don't have a choice of where and what you're doing. So it's just you know nothing special about what I wanted to do. It's just that a lot of my friends and people had, that I had grown up with, you know, in Moscow and all these other places had gone off to do sort of business kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, outside to not not stay doing contract work for the intelligence community. And so for some reason, autumn, when I came out, that's sort of where I was aiming. And, and I ended up quickly getting a job with McChrystal Group, with Stan McChrystal's um, consulting group, which does, you know, essentially leadership training and these things with, with companies, not any government work. And I did that for a while. And that company actually split. And I went with a part of it that was doing software things. And, you know, good people, interesting stuff. I learned a lot, worked with a lot of, you know, com- big companies and things, but it just wasn't that interesting to me I you know I sort of missed the content I missed the stuff that you guys do I miss talking about yeah. issues and that kind of stuff so you know as as Trump started to run for president and there was a lot of the stuff related to Russia I found myself having a little bit of a role talking about that and what does that mean people would you know they'd see stuff you know the Steele dossier came out and they're like what does this mean you know is, this is crazy well you know the things that they're alleging actually do happen whether they happen to trump or not you know remains to be seen we don't know it depends on the sources blah 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 so i started doing a little bit of writing and and moved on from doing that kind of consulting
0: and as i recall john your your role then maybe consciously or or not but your role then was largely explainer in chief you you weren't you weren't political you weren't partisan you were just saying this is what I can say about the business to illuminate all of this stuff that's in the news that we never thought would be in the news, and shedding some light from your operational experience, right?
2: Yeah, and that—that that was my intention. You guys both know that cause this because you work in the thing. But inside, there's just it's so non-political in the organization. Yeah. Like, I worked with people for thirty years, you know, day in and day out, and all kinds of crazy situations no sense of what their politics are until they retire. And then you see him on Facebook, you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea that he's this or that. And so, you know, over time, as, as I've started to comment on things, and then Twitter, you know, you know, I, definitely showing more of a political bent because I've been out for a while and it's just the nature sort of of the business. But my goal was, yeah, to try to explain what it's like to work as a public servant in, you know, the intelligence community. And so I, I did that for a while, and interestingly enough, sort of my – my taste into sort of the Hollywood stuff where I've moved is, I'm sitting home one day and I get this phone call from Rob Reiner. So honest, out of the blue, I'm sitting at home, but this like, John, this is Rob Reiner, and I'm like, come on, you'll be like all in the family, Rob Reiner. <laughs> yeah, and of course when as Trump started to come in, he was all you know, Rob Reiner's, a, you know, classic sort of Hollywood liberal I was upset about the Russia stuff, and he says, listen, I want to do a video about Trump and Russia and what that all means with you and General Hayden and Clint Watts. And I'm going to come to Washington and I want to do this thing. And I said, yeah, of course, that's, that'd be great. And so we did, he came and he put, he has like a website about Trump Russia stuff that he put this, these videos up on. But then subsequent to that, I was with a bunch of friends, several friends had retired from the agency and we were at a bar drinking and sort of telling our stories of daring do and, you know, semi lies and things. And, (laughs) and, uh, one guy was saying, you know, it's always funny when we have these discussions, everybody sits with us, you know, years later, will be like, God, that was the craziest thing. Listen to you guys with these stories of farce and screw up. And, and, uh, and so one of my friends had retired he, in his last job. He was the chief in uh, Berlin, who's a great sort of storyteller, did a lot of stuff in, uh, in counterterrorism, was in Afghanistan on the horses and the whole bit. Um, you know, we start, I started sort of bragging about how I knew uh, Rob Reiner and this and that. And we just got to talking and said, hey, you know, there's a lot of weird sort of charlatans from the intelligence community that show up in Hollywood and stuff. We ought to try to see if we can't do something. And our original idea was to do some sort of Anthony Bourdain type of show where instead of talking about food, we would travel the world and tell spy stories, you mm. know, existing sort of, you know, go to Vienna and find a starring bar and, yeah. and tell, you know, this, this is what happened here. That's what happened there. And as we started that process and we we're going out to talk to people in Hollywood, we met a number of contacts. And some people said, hey, you know, there would be an interest in what you guys are doing in the scripted side of the world, too. So not just, you know, unscripted Bourdain kind of thing. But, you know, there's a lot of writers that would like to work with you guys. And, and sort of one thing led to another. And we created a company called Spycraft Entertainment to try to become producers and work with writers and with with production companies. And the like to make movies, you know, the content side of it.
0: Go back half a step, if you sure. will. So. You said as you were starting to think through this and explore it, you know, they're the, the charlatans and and there's different ways of former intelligence officers to engage with the creative arts. Talk to us about that spectrum. You know, is it, you know, a former officer flying in for a day, sitting on a movie set, advising people how to load a weapon because they had mm-hmm. firearms training at the farm? Or is it you are writing? producing, directing, and acting in your own film. Where where in that spectrum did you learn that there are intelligence officers operating, and, and how did that get you to Spycraft Entertainment as your choice on that spectrum?
2: Well, I didn't have the vocabulary for that until I started, started working with a lot of people out there. But that first thing that you mentioned, where people come out, sort of to an existing movie set or an existing story and, you know, help them say, okay, what what does the office look like? What color is the badge? You know, these type of things. That's called consulting. And in sort of the Hollywood parlance, that's the lowest rank, you know. So there's, you know, a director and then there's producers and there's writers and there's the people who, you know, do all the filming. And and a lot of that is actually unionized. And then there's consultants that come in and sort of a day rate to do that type of stuff. And... Uh, early on, we learned that sort of we wanted to work more on the creative side to sort of do become production, to work with the writers from, from soup to nuts to sort of build a story and then pitch that story to production houses that have relationships with buyers and that, that type of stuff and sort of stay away from consulting. But, you know, we can always provide consultants because we have a lot of people, that friends and others that worked in the, in the intelligence community and military community that can, can do that type of work. But let me give you an example. So, you know, one of the ones we stories we told early on was of um, a colleague of ours who spent a lot of time working on Iran and in the Middle East and rose to a very senior sort of rank. And there was a number of agency people had sort of worked around the edges of Homeland. And a couple of them even showed up on screen a little bit, and they were sort of doing consulting work. And this officer sat down, he had just retired, and he sat down with some of the folks working on Homeland as you know, they were sort of into their second or third season and, and started talking about his career and experiences and essentially mapped out an entire, an entire, uh, um, not episode, one was sort of like like a se- season yeah, arc, season yeah. arc for, for Homeland, which essentially <laughs> they did. And, uh, you know, then afterwards, we, those are usually pretty expensive. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. And then afterwards, we were saying, oh, my gosh, you know, you, you did that. You know, what'd you get for that? He goes, well, I had dinner with Mandy Potemkin. And we're like, well, at least, you know, you got a free dinner. And he goes, well, actually, I paid for the dinner. What? And so Hollywood is very- great. <laughs> By the
1: way, knowing who this officer is, um, I'm curious which one of them was able to get a word in edgewise, well, Mandy Potemkin that's, that's or a- him, because they are both talkers. Oh, my
2: God. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It's funny you
0: mention it that way, John, because I've, I've talked to a couple of officers, and I have not done that kind of consulting on any films uh, yet. Although maybe the right one. Yeah, I'll get you in. Don't worry. Um, but I, I know an officer who has consulted on a couple and and he said there is a range there that one of them basically it was fly out to Hawaii or whatever it is for the filming. Talk to them. But it's basically on your own dime. You, you just do it as a gift to the studio. <laughs> and then the other one was not quite red carpet, but it was. Oh, yeah, we'll fly you out, you know business class first class um, we'll 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 give you this nice meal we'll you get to hang out with the crew for a couple of days and we'll pay you this much a day um, so there's some range there, of course, but it 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 wasn't what captured you, you didn't want to be that guy who would just occasionally pop in, give some advice which they would take or wouldn't take,
2: yeah, and I think that that's fun and and I think people want to do that, you know, just it's sort of dip your foot in, meet some stars, do that type of thing. There's no reason not to do that type of stuff. But, you know, as we built in and started to talk to people, we realized there was more we could do. Um, we ended up hooking up with a management company. So there's agents and management companies, and there's this whole sort of world of people in Hollywood doing these things, who, who started introducing us to Hollywood writers. and The ones started, that they represented, you mean. They, The ones yeah. they represented. And then, you know, we would talk to them about stories that you know, we were involved in, we knew um, eventually, you know, old spy stories, some of which there were books. And that sort of morphed into us starting to build our own stories, they call treatments, you put together anything from a two to 40 page sort of thing of, of what a story is. We put all that through the agency review board, so there's nothing classified.
1: Oh, that's interesting. They the even agency. they sign off on the treatments too. Yes, they do. Wow. Yeah. But that gives you the freedom to go forward with the treatments. Well, and to be clear, right. too, a treatment just so people understand is is never intended to be published. Right. So the publication review board is reviewing mm-hmm. material that's not actually going to that's be made public.
2: Point. Maybe I'll stop. Maybe I'll we'll stop. I'm not sharing. sure. <laughs> Talk to your lawyer. About but that. we do want the agency to know that at least in that process, yeah. we're not walking in and like wowing them with like secrets and things that's but but we don't need the frankly the people you know they're interested in characters stories things that would interest an audience they're not interested in you know the names of our sources or something that's going to no. cause damage to national security they're you know that's that's not the game anyway and so it's not it's not really a problem and so we created a number of stories that we lived through when I say we my my main partner is Jerry O'Shea he was the guy I said was in, in Germany and he'd been the chief in Baghdad and he'd been in Afghanistan on the horses, and he'd been in Zimbabwe. He was like a hippie growing up, smoking mm-hmm. dope in Afghanistan, got thrown in jail in like 1978 in Iran. Like and a all movie <laughs> yeah. 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 He's a crazy and, and fascinating individual. Um, and so we're sort of putting together these stories, and also then we're optioning books. So if, you know, an interesting book comes out that, that has an espionage story, we'll we'll option that, and then we'll try to find writers who then want to take that and translate that into a, into a TV series or into a movie. And so... We're doing a wide variety of those things. We have kids shows it, and all sorts of crazy.
1: Question, question like springing off, going back to the conversation sure. about Homeland, because um, so this officer goes out there and you know, frankly, I mean, I'll just say what I think, is taken advantage of. Like they sit him down. He writes basically a season arc. They give him nothing. And this is a fairly typical story in Hollywood where Mm -hmm. people will just rip off material and they'll take it. uh, They'll, you know, inspiration, books that have become inspirations for TV shows and the authors never see a dime of it. So when you went out there, I mean, did you find, how did you guard against that knowing that like... Yes, you're the cool spy who's come in and they're going to be like, oh, you know, like, you know, you're just going to get these great stories, John. And, oh, it's so awesome. But you're in their world and what they want is what's in your head and they want to pay you the least amount of money they have to to give it to you. So then you get the idea, though, to turn it around and form your own production company. So, I mean, did this – did you – what was your impression when you got out there and did you think like – there's actually a better way to do this. We should just start our own company and not be just beholden to these people, some of whom, to be clear, will pay gobs of money for consultant right. work and do it honorably. But you know, was there a moment where you said, like, no, 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 I can see how they're playing this. We should just get a step <laughs> ahead and do it ourselves?
2: Well, luckily, Jerry and I, we ran into a guy who had worked with a couple of other agency seniors in, you know, he was sort of a, an entrepreneur and worked on cybersecurity with a number of agency people. And his sort of take was like, you guys always get taken advantage of. Like you guys are all more talented and smarter and all these businesses sort of take advantage of you. And he lives in ho- out there, has worked in Hollywood, has, has had some companies where he sold things to Sony and worked with them on a variety of things. And so he early on sort of like took a hold of us and said, dudes, here's how this works. Okay. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you guys need to, you know, have a company here. You know, you need to be producers. You need to, and so... A little bit of a tutorial up front to say this is the way to go, as opposed to just you know being wowed by you know showing up on a set and, and a Hollywood set, and right, so, which
1: they know works. Yeah, and,
2: and once yeah. you meet you know writers and creative types, you know it, it's really it's really fun, and, and if you can be a value add where they see like I don't just need you for one t- one thing to give me some ideas, I want to work with you over time right. to build this story, build these characters, build this world. Um, you know, we found that most people are pretty up and up and willing to work with us, and and you know they don't writers don't really lose any money by working with us as producers because writers are part of a union and they're sort mm-hmm. of get a certain amount for a script, or, you yeah. know, whether or not it gets made, and those type of things. And so, we found that sort of working with people through the entire process has is been beneficial. Now, one of the things that makes it you know we're sort of learning the process is we're going sort of the long way to to, to get there to have shows made, and and and. Money doesn't come until something gets bought by a what distributor in What you mean the, lo- the long
1: way? Like you're pitching, you're creating the content idea, and then finding the money.
2: Well, what, what you do with, um, is you work with a writer, you build a story, and then you might go to a, another a larger production company that has an existing relationship with a buyer, like with a Netflix or an HBO or what have you. Um, and then you talk to them; they then agree to pay the pay the writer. To do the full script, in other words, you pitch them. They like the mm-hmm. idea. You work with them. You decide you're going to work together. They then pay the writer to do a full script, and then you go to then you go to potential buyers. You go to the Netflixes. You go to the HBOs, and some of them have relationships. And then they say yay yeah, or nay. Then you do a deal saying you're going to get paid this much for each episode. Blah blah blah. But you don't actually get paid until then. It's made and sold to a distributor who's going to then Mm -hmm. put it out. And, of course, what's happening with the industry, the industry is going through all kinds of changes, right? So there used to be sort of a way of doing business. There was movie theaters. There was movies. Nowadays, there's so much streaming. It's all sort of changed. You know, there's still big money in network TV, which is generally awful, but more eyeballs see that than anything Mm -hmm. else. And so, you know, if you can create a show, that one of these shows is CSI, Blue Bloods kind of shows that goes forever, you know you're, you're sort of writing your ticket.
0: what did you have in mind when you were first envisioning this and talking so you set up the business side right you set up the the legal construct and do all that administrative stuff that right. you probably had to do in a station and and running a <laughs> uh, uh, running an operational unit but on the content were you thinking full length feature films primarily or were you thinking yes, develop an actual TV series like you just mentioned
2: so there's sort of three ways to go there's there's you know films Mm -hmm. movies there's streaming series which most of us tend to watch now because it's sort of and then there's network tv Mm -hmm. and like i said streaming series you know some of that stuff is incredibly well done and and writers like that because they can take characters and content and and drag it out and actually tell a story in you know in in a much better way than, than you might be in two hours and so there's shows you know we talk about espionage shows what's the What's the famous one with De Niro um, years ago? Good, Good Shepherd, right? Oh, yeah. Telling the early stories of yep. the craziness of the CIA. But they tried to squeeze, like, you know, 30 hours of content into a two-and-a-half-hour right. movie, and it was sort of a failure. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, you can you can drag that out. That Tell it in 30 yeah. hours, right? Yeah. And so – but and, and there's a lot of, you know, interest in those kind of things. But, of course, less people see them than they see a network show. And so we're sort of trying to work in all, all three areas, doing movies and doing – and it, it sort of depends on sort of the the, the content, the idea. So sure. if we talk it through and someone will say, do you see this as a movie? And it's like, yeah, it could be a movie. But, you know, you can also, if you look at it this way and tell more of the story, it could be a streaming series. And
1: Are people trying in Hollywood trying to channel you into picking one lane? Or are they okay with the fact that you're playing in all of those different possible lanes and whatever works is great?
2: No, we haven't had anybody trying to, to do that. And we've, we're starting to get some success and get things bought in each of those. In each of those areas now of course since we're new um, it's a little bit harder you know in terms of like you know how much you might get per episode and those type of things you sort of need to get something out there where people see and go oh this is really quality and people want to come to you so I said some of the production houses that we work with we work with them because they have a relationship with buyers HBO Hulu would now we want to get to a point where someone said where Netflix says Okay, we want you to work with us. We'll pay you a certain amount of money per year to keep your company going, but we get first look at everything you yeah, do. Yeah, you get an exclusive deal. Yeah, yeah, and then of course, if if, if it doesn't, then you can 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 move it on to other places. And so, we you know we've been lucky. We've got to work with some really sort of high end writers and producers and, and sort of big shots. And so it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. But we still don't have anything that you can watch on. <laughs> what
1: well, can you talk? Are you allowed to talk about any of the projects that are in development,
2: so to speak? Or is That's it all still hush hush? I don't think it's hush is hush. It's still <laughs>
1: top secret.
2: We have a you know we have a couple shows with Apple we have one you know there's a lot of interest in sort of and the espionage side and, about families and how to how do people sort of mm-hmm. live overseas in this in this world and so we have one there's is, is essentially a you know a teen or kids show with Apple about you know a group of young kids who come back from overseas their parents are in, intelligence officers and they become they become witting in other words that's when mm-hmm. at some point in a kid's life you, you, you know as a CIA officer, you might tell your kids, "Okay, here's here's really what mom or dad do for a living."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and if we go back overseas, you need to help protect that cover and this type of thing. And so it's sort of a, you know, a Goonies type of story where these kids come back, they go their the parents take them to Family Day at the CIA, which David could talk about, and then they learn what their parents do and then of course they start doing their own little, you know, trying to uncover stuff. And there's tell some stories. really it's good. Um, I like can that. You get some
0: great personal dynamics there. That gives you some real Creative opportunities. Oh, there's a lot you can
2: work with there. Absolutely. Yeah. About you know how how kids see that. You know what what they have to do overseas. Are they mature enough to handle this? You're actually asking them to do to handle something that could be dangerous. Obviously, if you're back overseas, in terms of protecting and not saying things to their friends and that type of stuff, are they mature enough to do that? So, yeah. so we're doing that. We have another another one. Also, we're working with Apple with uh, with Gidi Roth, the writer that did um, the original Homeland, and he did The Spy with Sasha Baron Cohen and some other. Shows were so so my colleague Jerry lives in Hawaii and did started doing some research about a it's a fascinating there was a, a Nazi in 1930s Germany who was was essentially his daughter was screwing Goebbels and it became sort of an internal Nazi Party you know problem potential problem and so the Hitler essentially went to the father and said, listen, if you can go away for a while to to let this settle down, it would be a good thing. Interesting, you want he didn't to go? go to
0: Goebbels. He went to the father of yeah, exactly. the exactly. That says a lot. <laughs> yeah, it
2: does say a lot. And, well, you know, oh, they were Nazis. but yeah. And uh, he actually went to Hawaii. And so in Hawaii, in the lead up to Pearl Harbor, you had this white German guy who the Japanese realized was, was a real benefit to them and started helping spying for the Japanese to prepare for, for Pearl Harbor. And because he was a white German guy, he had access to all sorts of senior Navy and Army Americans and, mm-hmm. and started providing all sorts of information about, you know, you know, what was happening in those places. And his wife started a, a hairdresser place where all the wives would come back, you know, and it's like, oh, my husband's coming in on the Arizona this weekend and I need my, my hair to look good. And then they would pass this information about the Japanese, about when ships were coming in and out. He was actually arrested by the FBI on December eighth nineteen forty one the day wow. after Ooh. and so we built a story, you know true story and we, you know, we went through a lot of the old FBI files to try to put that together that's that's another kind of story as well as in movies related to you know some of the stuff that happened you know in Iraq with Yazidi sex slaves and um, you know, so, so we have you know, movies streaming shows and and then of course, if we can create one of these sort of um they call it sort of episode of the of the day or story of the day for for um, network TV. That's it. that would be a great thing too. It
1: yeah. sounds like I mean you're you also you're talking about stories that have happened at all different historical periods, <clears throat> parts of the world. It sounds like the appetite for this material is pretty diverse.
2: So, for example, we've optioned a book called Betrayal in Berlin, which is a f- fantastic book about with an author named Steve Vogel, whose father was a CIA officer, mm-hmm. and it's about in the 1950s, if you recall. You sort of the beginnings of the CIA, Eisenhower was like, listen, all I need the CIA to do is give me 24 hours notice of when the Soviets might attack in Germany or, or you know come across the, <laughs> the border. And, and we had almost no source almost we had no sources in the Soviet Union or in, in the West and had no sense of, you know we could easily be overrun in, in, in West Germany or in Europe. Um, and there was sort of this Hail Mary where our Berlin station decided to do this, this crazy idea of actually digging a tunnel from West Berlin into East Berlin and tap into the Soviet and East German phone lines, both classified, you know, both encrypted and non-encrypted. Um, and it's a fa- it's a fantastic story of how they did that and the success it had. But of course, it was undercut by a British SIS intelligence officer who who's a fascinating story in his own right who ended up being a british intelligence officer in korea when north koreans invaded in korea was mm-hmm. taken prisoner brought to north korea was in the prison camps for several years but while he was there became an avid communist and, and agreed to spy for the soviet union george blake his name was and after the after the korean war he was seen as a hero was brought back in brought back into the service and he was providing he was, he was in Berlin and knew about this process and was passing it on to the Soviets. But the Soviets were so, they needed to protect that source so mm-hmm. well because it was giving them incredible information that they essentially allowed the tunnel to continue, thinking that you know, their security and the military security would be good enough that it wouldn't cause much problems sort of unbeknownst to them, they were, <laughs> they were wrong. It was really fascinating. So we're working with the writer, the guy who did Field of Dreams and Sneakers and a number of other things to try to take that book and turn it into a streaming series, for example. That's the kind of thing we're
1: working on. Do you find that when you approach a writer, and these are people who've obviously, they've had their own careers as writers and probably written lots of different things. I mean, you just mentioned two diverse films right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Do they come in with preconceived notions about how the world of espionage and intelligence works that you kind of have to correct? Or do they come into it more with like a blank slate and like, I'll I'll just soak it up. You tell me, like, how this is supposed to feel and look and, like, what's authentic and what's not. S-
2: sort of both. And, and, you know, I really enjoy one of the things I like doing this st- type of stuff after having worked in the agency is it's fun to work with creative people. And that's essentially why you guys are doing what you do, too, right? You, you like the, you're interested in the content, you're interested in the issues, you're interested in working with smart people. And this is different from my previous job. But you know the writers—they're yeah—they're they're really sharp. They're really good. They're looking to to tell good stories and get them told, and they you know they're looking to create you know worlds that they can then move forward. Some of them are really sort of wannabes. Interest—they've read a lot of stuff. They're interested, and we just sort of need to work with them to aim you know where am I might go. Others are just willing. To, don't know much, but they sort of think they want to put something in in that world. And so, for example, young writer, um, you know, not really well known. He's on a number of shows. It sort of had a general idea. He wanted to write something sort of like The Sopranos, right? So The Sopranos is a family story, but they happen to be, you mm. know, mafia people, right? The mafia is sort of the secondary part of the of the story, and he wanted to do something. He had some ideas for how to do a, a story, a, a, some, some characters, but he wanted to put it in an overseas CIA station world. And so one of our colleagues we work with is was one of the most senior women in, in the... Um, in the clandestine service for years and years, came in early on when there wasn't many women doing this through the nasty days where men were <laughs> treating them very poorly and stuff. She lives now in, in Oklahoma, um, and so we brought the writer out and sat at her house for you know three or four days, just walking through stories of what it was like in this place, that place. You know what's it like with your family? You know how do you think about operations? How do you think about operating? You know in in this environment, in that environment. And essentially, you know, he's a young writer. We we don't mind spending the time with him. We didn't have, you know, big expectations that would come of it. He wrote an am- amazing pilot episode and several episodes since that were just incredible. And, then, and we've been talking with, you know, some very high-level, it's about a female officer overseas, people like Kate Winslet and others to, to play this role. And we've, we've gotten some, you know, sort of big-time producers that would be interested in, in, in doing this. What about, the,
0: what about the flip side? Because we have something in the uh, book writing environment now that we didn't have decades ago, which is plenty of former intelligence officers writing fiction. So instead of working with a Hollywood writer who thinks they have a good story that involves intelligence and then you you tell them what they got wrong and you mutually decide, do we want to keep it wrong because that's more entertaining? Now you have a bunch of officers out there writing fiction, including David, David McCloskey, McCloskey, who's yeah. been on this podcast. Yeah. So. Are you interested in exploring that because it actually makes your work quite a bit easier than working with a raw writer and turning it into gold?
2: No, yeah, absolutely. So so that's sort of the, and it's all about IP, intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So intellectual property could be our stories that we put into a treatment that we then work with a writer on. Mm-hmm. It could be a book, a podcast, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, an article. You know, Shane, I think Shane I see can where can he's a, going here. This Shane is Chatter the Movie. Yeah, there you, go. you know, and there's there's a number of podcasts and things that are now being made into shows and stuff. Sure. And mm-hmm. Wind
1: of Change by my friend Patrick Radenke yeah, was a great on one. That. That's right, <laughs> you are in that. That's right, yeah.
2: Which is funny, I had no idea what he was, you know, doing, but I did this interview, and several years later, all of a sudden, it shows up, and it's like, oh, that's yes. interesting. The yeah, question he, of whether the CIA
1: writer. actually wrote the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions, <laughs> no which was the Cold War Anthem, yeah, it's, but that's uh, a great example. Yeah, no, of I've it.
2: talked to a lot of CIA officers who don't know the answer either. <laughs> right, right, exactly.
1: But, you know, I know other journalists, too, who are getting approached to do long-form narrative podcasts in the way that they would have been approached five, ten years ago, um, to write a longer book based off an article or to turn their article into a screenplay. Yep. And podcast is now just another format.
2: Yeah, and David McCluskey's a friend his 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 new novel is fantastic. We're trying to option it, but of course everyone, the, everyone wants to option it. Yeah, ever. his big yeah, his people you talk to them they're like harump Harump, we'll wait and see," you know, like "okay, fine," you know. You you And there's also a game that goes on there. So like all sorts of articles and books get picked up in options, essentially for like British writers, BBC buys them all up, but then does nothing with the great majority of them. Mm-hmm. And what we're hoping to do is get enough of a brand and respectability that, that, you know, we work in the intelligence community space that if we're promoting a book, it's worth talking to us to go to go forward. So there's a, you know, unfortunately, most of these things never make it past, you know, and you hear stories of authors, there's a guy who wrote a book on um, Jim Nicholson, who was a CIA spy that got arrested, and then in prison recruited his son to continue yep. spying with the russians which is a fantastic story and I was talking to the author just last week about hey let, you know we'd like to work this and he's like yeah let me tell you the story of what happened you know it was originally you know they came in and de niro and all these people were going to do this movie blah blah all, you know two years of talk and nothing happened and then you know options to somebody else and all this talk and then nothing happened and and so you know he's sort of trying to write his own script now to see if he can get that made and i think it would be a great and we're going to try to work with him. And so, so yes, we want to look for yeah. any kind of book, any kind of IP that, that is worth doing. And there's, the, the thing is, once we have this brand and people start coming to us instead of us trying to, we can then point people to hundreds of fantastic books, hundreds of fantastic stories, stuff mm-hmm. that there's been books on but out of print or people have forgotten. You know, look at some of the movies that have come out lately, you know, Bridge of Spies, there's the Penkovsky movie with right. Cumberbatch. You all those kind of courier, yeah. Those stories have been known for seventy years, and nobody did a film. And right. then. Once they do it, like a, you know, there's, a, yeah. there's all of a sudden there's interest. In well, this.
1: it's 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 worth spending a second too, just on the on the vocabulary too, to, for for listeners who don't know, you know, when a work is optioned, it doesn't mean someone's going to make it. It just means that they're paying you to temporarily not sell it to anyone else. Right. Right. And the option is usually, it can be a considerable amount of money, but it's not the kind of money when you sell the rights to something. And it's 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 you know, it's it's not a pittance, but it's it's enough to make you cool your jets for a little while. And it's that period that you're talking about where lots of big ideas and lots of big talk happens and then most of the time nothing ever is consummated. And so I think that must be very, you know, frustrating. It's obviously very frustrating for writers, I know. But what you're proposing here is something different where you want to be seen as like the place where when you seriously want to make good content, like these guys know where to go. And it's not just like, yeah, Spielberg has three things optioned, and Tom Hanks optioned another submarine movie and this or that. But it's much more, like organized and and you have kind of more of, a, of an
2: authority. Yeah, there's a few downsides that are interesting. So like one of the things you might want to do is obviously get a big time actor or something to sign on to your thing, or and that that can be really good, but it can also be a real problem because you know big time actors. Say I'm just making this up, Brad Pitt or someone signs on to your movie, but the problem is Brad Pitt signs on to 20 things. Yep. Mm-hmm. he can make eight of them, and even though you know there's a lot of churn around, he's on your movie like. It, if he's, it it he can't it can get to it timing, he, he, to, can't, you know, he can't do yeah. those type of things. And so there's, there's, there's sort of downsides to that piece. And what's, what's interesting is some really crappy stuff gets made and in this space. And oftentimes early on, we'd be going to our sort of manager, our people. We work in Hollywood and say, look, how in the world did this thing get made? And they say, well, there's different ways of working your way into it. If a big star reads a book and is enamored with the book even if it's crappy it'll get made it'll get made <laughs> you know and so there's different ways in and the thing is we need to build the, the credibility and brand so that we're one of the known ways in and so you know we're, we're we're working there
1: do you find that i mean is it the stars who get enamored in these kinds of projects or even the producers is it is it nostalgia that's driving them is it that spy movies are just inherently cool I mean, like, what is the kind of thing that's always hooking them? Because I imagine they could come into it, too, with an idea in their head of, like, oh, I know what my favorite spy movie was or, like, I remember my favorite Bond movie. Like, so what? what is it usually that hooks them on the subject?
2: Well, there's a couple things. One is I think there's been some sort of data or research that suggests actually spy movies do better, like, in terms of box office and things. And so there's an interest sort of in, in that world. It is a world which is interesting where you can explore, you know, betrayal and... Uh, trust and all of these type of things you know so it's it has to do at the end of the day with the human factor they're good tied plot into points
0: that. inherent to the genre yeah
2: right? you know it's international intrigue it's you know big 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 issues around sort of personal decisions yeah. with you know between a couple of different people yeah. but part of the problem is a problem is is that you know a lot of times espionage films get put in the action genre and the thriller genre because you know with the with the Shoot, shooting and the car chases and that type of stuff and sometimes you know it sort of goes away from i think you know a really good writer who could explore characters all of a sudden is now you know interested in blowing stuff up and the thing is you know blowing stuff up makes makes money and
1: teenage boys like to see things yeah. blow up <laughs> yeah. and it's so we want to sure. try to
2: you know move into the sort of stories that are much more sort of human factor dealing with sort of the issues of between us a, a source and a handler for example that type of thing
1: and that seems much more would lend itself much more to the kind of prestige drama that is of interest to streaming services so mm-hmm. like you know you mentioned kate winslet so you take something like mayor of town which mm-hmm. is fantastic she's incredible I would wager to say very few people saw that performance, right. even though it's like the performance of the year yeah. by by an actress. Um, and, and, but it's, it's, it strikes me like when you're talking about like what's gonna be like the dividing line between that show and the network show, and there's nothing wrong with this, but like the network show is probably gonna be the one that's more about the visuals and about the sort of mm-hmm. adrenaline and less about the characters. And that's just gonna appeal to a broader audience. But this subject matter really can cut across all of them. We can all cite examples. Well, ex-
2: exactly. Of that. For example, you, oftentimes you'll talk about the network shows as case of the week, right? So you can imagine, yeah, like, okay, right. so you're taking whatever it is, Blue Bloods or CSI. It's like once you've created a cadre of sort of characters that you think you're interested in, then every week can be a different. Know, the they, don't, they don't the necessarily case. need to hold yeah. together. They, uh, you know.
3: Right.
2: And essentially, an espionage. What we have is cases, like right. So if I can create You've a got group, raw material there, you know, yeah. and we're trying to whether it's you know something people haven't seen before, like agency lawyers, or whether it's the the, the defection center of how they deal with you know all these people coming into a new country and their family didn't realize they were spying. This type of stuff. If we can create that world, and then we can just do it's easy to then put together you know crazy cases to 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 keep that going. But the streaming, you know, is sort of writers are very interested in that now think about chernobyl which was incredibly yeah, was popular awesome. can you imagine trying to sell that though i can imagine them for years going and say hey you know we have this great idea we're going to do chernobyl and they would be like oh my god could anything be more boring we know what happened. depressing yeah. the sort of east Europe is depressing everybody knows what happens but if something's done well it's like the wind of change podcast like mm-hmm. there's no story there but yeah when a story is told really well yeah really good people it draws you in yeah. and i think Chernobyl was a good example of that it ended up being a fantastic
1: yeah and something that in something in, you know wind of change is a good example of this and you know patrick has written stories like this and even books before where that podcast is essentially his reporting process. Like if you want I, – I would tell people too, like if you want to see how like a magazine writer writes a magazine article, just listen to that podcast because that's basically what he's doing. He's starting with a question. Did this – song, this anthem of the Cold War. Was it secretly written by the CIA as propaganda? Follow me, dear listener, as I seek to find whether the answer is, right? And like, spoiler alert, you get to the end, it's like, it's not really conclusive. (laughs) Um, but But I think that there's something about this genre that's also, it's mystery, right? I mean, a case is a mystery, and you as an intelligence officer are constantly trying to figure out, why is this leader doing X? Who's behind this operation? And that is just like, intrinsically humanly interesting right it's the same reason that the mystery genre like will yeah. is huge and will, and will never die yeah. or crime yeah. exactly and they're all like cousins of one another yeah
2: yeah and i mean it's about telling stories and telling stories well yes. and there's different ways of doing that in, in movies you know covid has really sort of changed the how the industry works in terms of how distributors buy things and a lot of theaters have gone out of business mm-hmm. sort of that process where movies so they tend to get made less. And, you know, some big movies have not done well. West Side Story essentially was a flop, even though it was, you know. Yeah, it's it's, amazing. It's not, you know, I mean, for example. Um, But there's some stories, you know, that really can be told in two hours that that really big sort of dramas and things. And then there's some stories that are better for each. And so that's part of the thing is finding the right menu.
1: You're never going to run out of material, but like we have, it must be just very exciting too. I find it exciting as, as you know, as a creative person that, there are just so many more outlets than there were yeah. before. And if you think of like – if we go back to thinking like – and we'll talk, you know, some about like our favorite and least favorite spy movies. But like it used to just be like the genre was just defined by like the 90 to 120-minute film, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there weren't spy TV. I mean I guess there were like some spy TV mm-hmm. shows. Some of them were comedies. But, you know, we didn't have anything close to the explosion of content that we have now. It was relegated largely to feature films and books yeah. and I guess newspaper articles too. But now it's just – a good time.
2: To I'm getting old now and I'm thinking mm-hmm. at some point when I can't move and I'm sitting on a chair what a great when I grew up you had you know three TV channels and you could read now when the time comes when I'm like completely I consider and I can watch sports at my heart's content and every kind of streaming series. and the thing is there's so much stuff out there like something you've never heard of, and a friend or, you know, Shane will say, like, hey, have you looked at this? And you're watching, and you're like, oh, my God, it's really good. It's really
1: good. Yeah. Do you find you – so you opened the door to this. I didn't want to ask this indelicately, but, like, you're entering a career after you've had a career, right? right? And it, it, so is that – I mean, it must be very exciting, but is it – what's that been like sort of like, you know, you're starting a new thing after you've done this big thing already? And, you know, and it's obviously – I mean, it's not – it's – so Hollywood is like it's a it's not entirely a young person's industry but it's just like yeah. there's a lot of churn. Everything is a young person's industry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I
2: mean in many ways. And so, yeah, I mean for for one, I I left CIA completely satisfied with my career. And and that's not always the case. A lot of people, you know, are looking to become this or the director or this then they're trying to move up the chain or whatever it is. And so a lot of very very talented and good people leave upset or leave angry, huh. which is su- unfortunate or
0: at least feeling incomplete that they yeah. need to make their mark in something else.
2: yeah and you know i i could have stayed i probably would have loved staying i loved every minute i love living overseas i love learning new cultures i love learning new languages i love dealing with for dealing with the issues of the day um long management small, meetings yeah. writing performance <laughs> well, reviews approving up budgets in upstate new york so even even that stuff is not that painful <laughs> um so i have no i have no regrets um and so th- what i like about this is just it's different. It's creative. It's fun. If it doesn't succeed, it's still fun. Now, we've been lucky enough. We have a couple investors who are, you know, sort of interested in the thing in this sort of area. They're giving us some money so we, we can pay ourselves at least enough so that, you know, our spouses aren't going to yell at us or whatever. Okay. So it's worth thing. your time. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you know, if it succeeds, then that that's all to the good. But I'm not doing it because yeah. I need to have success. I need to validate myself. I need to make money. It's... It's fun, and it's creative, and if money comes out of it, great. And if success comes out of it, great. But I've already had a career which I loved and feel feel fulfilled through.
0: I wanna follow up on that thing you just dropped there, which is investors. So, don't want you to reveal who your investors are, but why would people invest in this? Because there a is, there's a lot of failure in this business. <laughs> there's, no pros- there's no guarantee that you're going to succeed because, like you said, you might get 20 different people showing interest in this and even having Brad Pitt scoop it up or Leonardo DiCaprio for his company scoop it up. And then it never gets made and the money doesn't, the big money doesn't ultimately come through. Mm -hmm. What attracted your investors? Was it an interest in the raw material and wanting to see someone do it right? Or did they actually see that this could be a money making venture over time?
2: Or they were dudes with
1: a lot of money and thought this was cool. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, the, I think Hollywood has lived off of that. They've lived off of people with a lot of money who are doing stuff, but working with Hollywood gives them that high. That like, oh my goodness, I can show up at this party. I can mm. be this. I'm part of. I'm this. working with this
1: guy. We're making a movie. And so Kate Winslet's interested. Yeah, I've had a couple writers basically that, get shorty, but right? I've
2: talked to and they and they've done some cool Hollywood. stuff. These writers, and I'm like, how did you end up doing that? And he's like there is no better line than, I'm making a movie. You can get, <laughs> anybody will give you anything or do anything and show you anything if you can say, I'm making a movie. Um, and so essentially there's that. So so essentially our investors are people who you know, have made a lot of money, they're doing well, um, but I think of the many things they're doing, if this pays off and they can sort of have success in this area, it's just that extra thing, it's sort mm-hmm. of cool, it's different. Um, I think they do think there's a ch- good chance of success. Um, but you're right, it's not, if you're one of these guys that, you know, needs a 10x, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest and I expect it to be this much over this time and invest in Silicon Valley and stuff, investing in Hollywood is, is, it's a gamble. It's essentially a lottery ticket, right? So you're buying a lottery ticket and it could pay off, but it's likely not to pay off. But, you know, if you're interested in that area and you sort of want to, you know, be associating yourself with Hollywood and things like that. It might be worth it for you.
1: I want to ask you about one movie in particular. And I, you, what, year, what year did you leave the agency?
2: 2014.
1: OK. So um, I want to ask you about Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. And you know, putting aside for a second whether you like the film or not, I happen to think it's a great film. I really like it. I've rewatched it several times. But that movie generated a significant amount of controversy for the way that the CIA cooperated with the filmmakers, Catherine Bigelow and her writing partner. Um, Talk about that. Do you have a view on that? I mean, so. I mean, the, the, the negative critique of it is that the CIA basically um, uh, became enamored. This huge director came in that wanted to make this laudatory film about one of the great successes in the history of the CIA. So they basically just gave them tons of classified information and told them things they would never tell someone like me, working as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know the positive review of it might be, you know, hey, they worked with a filmmaker to tell a story about, you know, an incredibly significant moment in American history to make sure they got it right and that they had all the information they needed. Okay. Where, where do you come down on yeah. this? Because it became, a, it became a real controversy. No, it did. It,
2: it, and, of course, they were dealing with a controversial thing as well. Um, mm-hmm. So our goal with this was, you know, we were CIA officers who did love our work and— He loved working for the CIA, but our goal was not to make the CIA look good or make the CIA necessarily look bad. It was to tell interesting stories. And so we have cooperated with the CIA in the sense that we've let them know what we're doing. We put our stuff through to make sure that they're confident we're not giving away secrets and classified information. We sort of keep public affairs informed about that we're doing this, but we have nothing— you know, there's no sort of deal or a movie that we're trying to do with them or, or get stuff from them. It's, um, you know, maybe maybe someday. But I don't think that is a is a way we want to or need to go. There are some things that over the years that the agency has, you know, there's The Billion Dollar Spy, the book on Tolkachev. Mm-hmm. There's Great this book. new book about uh, First Casualty, which is about the, uh, the early teams that went into Afghanistan and the death of Johnny Spann. And as you read those, it's clear that, either the agency supported them or supported some people that were involved in those issues talking to writers or, or movies and stuff so yeah we're not looking to do that and we don't need to at this point I mean it's sort of you know there's there's plenty of content and stories out there without having to you know sort of piggyback off of the, of mm-hmm. the agency
1: what like, do you think about the way that they opened the doors to Catherine Bigelow and those filmmakers you know I,
2: you know what's funny I watched that film early on wasn't didn't care that much about it um sort of tangentially followed that issue. You know, the Defense Department does this like as routine. Like they have mm. people who work yeah. specifically on providing content and pushing movies and helping and them. Top
1: Gun do is like, from my childhood, the most famous example. Well, exactly. And,
2: and the and FBI, and the, historically, is famous and, for and it. Yeah. And the agency ago. essentially does it poorly, has mm-hmm. always done, like, you know, for example, there was that movie, Horse Soldiers, about people going into, mm-hmm. and essentially there's a number of these people who ended up talking to this book, First, Ca- First Casualty, which is pretty good, I think, um, who at the time said, hey, you know, this movie's going to be made. It's really our story. It's not a military story. We should talk to them. And they just absolutely not, absolutely not. Of course, then it comes out, and they're like, oh, well, you know, this was a missed opportunity. We could have done these kind of things. You know, we're trying to avoid that whole thing. We're not interested in doing that. Yeah, whether the Zero Dark Thirty, working with the agency, mm. yeah, I don't think they needed to. I'm not sure who made the decision and why. Um, it does, you know, everybody knew that the whole issue of enhanced interrogations and stuff was going to be problematic, and the government and you know, is usually poor at explaining the background and situations, everything from Snowden to interrogation, if you know, if laid out properly, could at least make it clear to people what mm-hmm. risks and decisions and why, even if you disagree with them, you could at least understand it. And he's traditionally been crappy at that. So I don't know why at certain times they think, oh, we're going to jump in both feet on this one. I think, <laughs> you know, I,
1: I, I may have some, well, I think I do some insight on that question, which was that when... The bin Laden operation went down. I mean, it was like there were a lot of people in the Obama administration very eager to talk to reporters Whoa. right away. Well, some of the and, things
2: they said early on, but that and others ended up hurting us. You yeah. Know, I, didn't, I worked I mean, in Pakistan, so I know that. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah, there
1: was a real, I think, push to very quickly, I mean, I'll use the overused term, but it, it works here to solidify the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even down to the point where there were rich stories coming out within days about like that were like in the room when yeah. they shot Bin Laden, and you're like, mm, okay, hold on here. Yeah. Um, but there was a real rush for that, and I think that that reflected on the part of the White House and the CIA, military, understandably, um, a real desire to celebrate their success that they had mm-hmm. this, you know, just extraordinarily successful operation, and they're like, get that story out there. It's a good story. Well, for and us. I think,
2: and at that time, this movie was already moving along. I think it was meant to be a movie on on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Like I think they'd oh, already. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they weren't yeah. doing. So I it. think they were already down the road. They just yeah, switched yeah, yeah, it yeah. to become Bin Laden's story.
1: Right, right. Well, the thing I do like about that movie, and maybe we can transition to talking about some movies, is right. like, is is what it, it seemed to me to get. In addition to just I love the way it's shot, and there's the tension of it, and the music, the score is just incredible too. It's really, really great. Yeah, now I got to rewatch it. Okay, it, mm-hmm. it's good, but it's like it's the way that it deals with um, the uncertainty of intelligence analysis, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the Jessica Chastain character is sort of, I guess she's kind of a composite. But, you know, she's- Definitely a composite. Yeah, so she's driven and she's, you know, but she's driven by a kind of, an obsession, but also kind of a level of certainty that the other analysts around her don't really have. And there's this get the famous scene where she's sitting in the conference room with Panetta, who's played by the late James Gandolfini, and they're going around the conference room table saying, like, give me your confidence level that he's actually in the compound. And people are like, oh, 50%, 70%. she's like, 100%. I know I'm not supposed to say it, so like, whatever, 99%, but it's 100 mm-hmm. And I love this. It, it, it gets you to these whole, like, the way that the confidence levels are constantly just reflecting that there's it's always a we're not sure, mm-hmm. and on that operation, this I thought they got really right is at the end of the day the president had to make the call to risk you know many lives in an international incident uh, by you know on. What was not a definitive answer, and that seemed to me like that part they really played that out and made you feel like I mean, obviously you know how it ends, so you know that it's hundred percent that he's but, there. But, but they get that tension. It even
2: doesn't end having been there after that, and like I said, the consequences of decisions like that play out over time. Totally asking yeah. them for other help of you know like they're gonna find out right. And so, yeah, that, it's, it's, it's interesting. And we do have people like that. And, and, you know, some of these are based on some real people that we know. And some of those real people aren't necessarily like, you know, aren't the greatest, and most wonderful people. That Someone mm-hmm. who, can, who can be really useful and good in one situation might be a real handling problem and management yeah. problem in another.
0: So I find myself thinking during this whole Zero Dark Thirty conversation uh, of pairing it with a very different way that – the, the CIA handled an operation, if you will, and its cooperation with film and the time frame, which is Argo. Yeah, Here's a story that was also a great success, that just like the abbott operation could have within days or weeks, probably not within days or weeks because of some contingencies on the ground, but shortly thereafter could have been put out there and told, and it wasn't. It wasn't essentially declassified. I think George Tenet finally opened up well, the story Well, it, it was a
2: studies and intelligence article. Mm-hmm. Is what it was. So you know the the sort of in-house classified, in- yeah. One. Uh. yeah. But eventually yeah. that was widely read. No, well none of yeah <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing in there is widely read. But decades later, a, opened up, they allow
0: Tony to go out, and start talking about it. Right. Suddenly Tony there's a book. This, yeah. Suddenly there's a script. Suddenly there's a movie. Um, I think overall a very good movie. Yeah, cool. uh, most people complain about the airport scene at the end, which is gratuitous and unnecessary. But overall a good movie. But it had decades to percolate. Yeah. As opposed to the story of Abbottabad, uh, which came out months? But it was even— Oh, I mean that— yeah. The story yeah. was
2: known in Hollywood. It took, you know, eight to ten years to get it made even after right. people started and knew about it. So, I mean, there's— Yeah. There's—when does when does something become declassified or when does the agency get involved? And then there's how long it takes to make a short so movie. You, and there's, there's tons of stories of fantastic movies that nobody wanted to buy, no one was interested in. And all of a sudden, years later, it gets made. Somebody makes yeah. it. Do
0: you have an interest in that? Do you have an interest not in the story of— I'll say spy kids, although that's not where you're going with it, but mm-hmm. the, the, the children of intelligence officers who discover that what their parents do. And But do you have an interest in the true stories, the the things like Argo? Oh, yeah, or, yeah. You, so taking a story of some intelligence operation that was great that hasn't been made into a film yet and saying, okay, we will dramatize it a bit. We'll call it a based-on story, but we know it's the real case. Yeah, it's,
2: it's, it's not the true story. It's... it's it's not the truth in the story it's that well, whatever i'll mess up yeah. the way we say it but yeah. but there there's you can tell a true story and and still not share stuff that could do damage or security right. problems and that type of stuff so yes we're looking to do that and there's tons of things that are already out there i mean you make your living off this yeah. this kind of stuff that that you know if told in the right way would really be really be interesting and so yeah, we're looking to tell real story. What we're not, we haven't done yet, and I don't know if we ever will, is get into like the documentary space. Mm-hmm. Because the problem with when you get into documentaries, they really they just need to keep you know like you if you're, you're you're gonna keep digging until you can't go any further, and you know that gets into potentially you know. Whereas what we can do now is we can tell the real story, can tell sort of the real feel, the real atmosphere, some basic things, but then sort of shave off pieces we know might be sensitive. Well, you have that barrier. But with, that a, a, with, a, with a documentary, you can't do that. And frankly, documentaries are tough because you often have to raise money. They don't make much money. Yeah, they're a total grind. Not, yeah. And it's, you do have yeah.
0: that barrier of going through the publication review board, yeah. which is, is largely fine, and you've, yeah. you've, you've suggested that it's fine. But some of the most interesting potential true stories, whether made as a documentary or as a, a feature film or TV series, a lot of them revolve around some of the really interesting, whether it's technology or, or some of the really interesting ways of vetting sources that probably would have some issues getting through the Publication Review Board. So that, that binds your hands a bit on some of those stories and maybe pushes you more towards the true fiction.
1: There's a, I think there's another iteration of this, too, that I, I think about a lot because I'm working on a novel, which is that you take a real event – Have you optioned it to anybody? (laughs) We can talk. later. (laughs) I guess to write it first. (laughs) Call my agent. Um, uh, You have to write it first. But like you, you sort of take a real event and you kind of reimagine it, right? So you take a period in history and say, well, what if things had gone a little bit differently? Or you just use it as kind of material that becomes like an inspiration or the subject matter broadly, and you imagine a a new plot. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's also so interesting about this this genre is that. The audience is familiar enough with the landscape of espionage. Now, granted, a lot of it may be misinformed by films they've seen that are kind of, you know, like, well, it's not really like that. But the human element of the aspect of stealing secrets and the daring do and the intrigue and all of that, it creates enough terrain that you can sort of take something. And this is a lot of times what, like, ripped from the headlines – shows like, you know, CSI and whatever mm. we'll do, and just take a recent event and kind of reimagine it and, and I think that gives people places to hang on to it mm. too. So that's like another form. and i I have found in playing around with in writing fiction, you can often be more truthful than you can oh, yeah. as a journalist. I mean, because you know, to your point, you got to keep digging. You have to find the facts. You may know or suspect things as a journalist or even have things that somebody told you, but you can't tell it because you promised to keep it off the record. And in fiction, you can say it. Yes. in a way that's not compromising, that's right. or you can sort of make little bits of leaps and fill in the blanks that you can't always do with nonfiction, and yeah. it's incredibly liberating <laughs> as a writer, I have Well, to say. you know,
2: following Russia and what Russia has been doing to us, you know, on, this, on subversion and sabotage, all these kind of crazy things and assassinations of, and dealing with our elections and all this kind of stuff, there's oftentimes, journalists are stuck, they're like, you know, we can't prove this, that, this, and the other happened. It's like, well, yeah, you can't prove in the sense that, yeah, you go to court and I actually can see Putin's signature giving it to whatever, but right. you know, you have enough patterns, you know right. what they've done for years, you understand how this fits in, who's doing what. Like, you can know stuff. So if you're going to write fiction or write a movie, is essentially you can write the truth, Yeah. but it's not, you know, you're not stuck with those things. I need to have six sources and I need to see the actual, you know, I'm not going to judge has to see the the real thing that Exactly. Thing.
1: And I think that you get more and I think you can actually in some ways make it more authentic of yeah. a story because that you're able to then also imagine the human motivation and the human action and reaction in a way that is also very hard frankly mm-hmm. as when we're trying to capture this in a, in a piece of journalism, often because, you know, the sources don't want to say very much or they don't want to be quoted right. or, you know, they say, well, don't give away too much because it will reel my identity. Um, and and, and, and in, in a news story, there's often like not as much room for dialogue. Obviously, you've got to need like you need like a magazine format to do that. Um, but I think like for, for, for writers, just speaking for myself, and I'm sure like others like you know David Ignatius and people who've done both or Daniel Silva would probably echo this is that you kind of finally get to take everything that gives you, put it like, I know this is true, even though I can't prove it, and I can tell you a true story mm-hmm. that's like, ah, oh, like okay, it's expansive, <laughs> and I can like exhale it. It's, right,
2: it's, and that's exactly what we're, we're, we're trying to do and, and hope great. to get there. And, and some of it's, I mean, as you know, there's also, in the espionage, where there's a lot of stuff that's come out, and there's books, you know, you may be working on something now, it's, but then eventually you write about it afterwards where mm-hmm. more people are willing to talk, and it's, so you read that Billion Dollar Spy, you read... Um, the stuff about the the illegals, what's his name, Russians among us. You read, those are like you read those things and you're like, oh my god. At one point, I thought I knew the, the you know the real secrets and no one else knew. And then here it is in, a, wow. <laughs> in book form. Yeah. well, David thing.
1: Hoffman, who did Billion Dollar Spy, is yeah. great for that. Dead Hand is another just unbelievable. Oh, I didn't do this. I have to look. Yeah. So that he uh, uh, he that was his book about the uh, uh, the doomsday mechanism that the Russians had developed that if they were wiped out by a nuclear strike, it was supposed to launch the missiles at the end. Yeah. It's great stuff. So let's talk about some. Spy movies. So, sure. all right. So, do you have a do you have an all time favorite spy movie, or like a short list? And we can define spy movie if you
2: want. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, phew. usually the question is which ones are more realistic. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but in terms of favorites, I like the ones that everybody else likes. All, I, I love all the Tom Clancy movies. I like the Le Carre movies. Um, you know, the spy who came in from the cold and Red October. All those things. I really like those and feel good about those there's if you want to move into ones that are that I like which are more realistic you know there's The Spy with Sacha Baron Cohen about you know in sort of Syria there's The the Americans we can talk about that separately and then uh, The Bureau the French show about, love The Bureau yeah which is if anything has more realistic feel than anything else The Bureau is great because it you know it's sort of in the office the bureaucracy the politics people that go out to the field it's dealing with you know Real issues that are, that France and the United States and we are dealing with with Russia and Syria and ISIS and all those other type of things and so that one really really and it really me. is like
1: it, the inner life of those characters too and the psychology and the way that they're gaming each other and keeping things from one another I mean it is like I mean you said it well it's kind of an office drama <laughs> which is it is, is astonishing that it is as riveting as it actually is the bureau it's 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 amazing. which is true
2: like if you're talking about what's realistic with you know intelligence and spy work you know, most of our work is like is boring, right? Yeah. So we're we're, you know, we're writers. Like, when you're overseas, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. So yes, I I get to go out and, you know, make sure I'm not under surveillance and spend hours and go in hiding and meet someone in an alley and, you know, pay them potentially or get specific information related to questions of the day and someone who has access. And so there's there's stuff that's sort of sexy and fun and on the street, but then I'm spending a ton of time. Writing up this stuff, what's mm-hmm. the plan? What exactly happened? What was said? Uh oh, I didn't ask this question. I need to go back and get this thing answered. And so, you know, it, it's a lot of in the office writing, you know, sort of bureaucratic stuff. But also, you know, that, that's if written well, that can be interesting too. Yeah. And that's what yeah. the Bureau, I think, does. But it does lead to well. the
0: dilemma that I think a lot of former intelligence officers have. When we talk about spy movies, the, the most common reactions are. You know, which ones suck the most? (laughs) And the enjoyment question rarely comes up. But being able to separate, I'm watching this as entertainment. I can watch the James Bond movies as entertainment, and that's perfectly fine. But as soon as there's someone else in the room who's an intelligence officer, you, you can't help but look at each other and roll your eyes when something happens. Not, of course, the jumping out of a helicopter and skiing down the mountain and shooting at people or climbing up the Eiffel Tower uh, in, in uh, okay, yeah. those, yeah, those things, it's, it's pretty obvious, but the ones that are supposedly the realistic parts, and you still roll your eyes at them, but there's a way of doing it because there's still compelling human drama in office interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the personalities? And you've been in some of those arguments in those conference rooms where you have people screaming from a counterintelligence angle, we can't do this because we don't know X. And the other person saying, but, but we have Y and Z that overrides X. And then the personalities come in. That's still compelling drama, Mm -hmm. totally. Yeah, and And, and and because the stakes
1: are there too, right? I mean, if you know that, like, if it's a show about like the the fate of this agent's life or the fate of this operation hinges on our ability to know whether we're being lied to, those are pretty good stakes. Yeah, you know, exfiltration stories. Uh, I have not seen a lot of
0: great exfiltration stories in movies,
2: but there's some that have been written. You read like McIntyre that writes these books, mm -hmm, British author. He does a really good job of taking essentially known spy cases. And, and make putting them in a in a, a way that makes them really interesting to read, you know. Yeah, like, and kind so of just repackaging yeah, yeah. and retelling them. And sure. and there's a couple of exfiltrations. The Gordievsky story, for example, right. they walk through that kind of stuff. But the one thing I that I often don't see in movies, which should be something that they're really interested in, is just sort of. I remember director Hayden used to talk about our goal is, is to be as close to the border. You know, our job is to playing provide to information, edge. playing to the edge, yeah. right? Chalk so, on the cleats, chalk mm-hmm. on the cleats, kind of stuff. And so you're dealing with with moral, ethical dilemmas, and so often the public debate is, oh, the right answer is clearly this or clearly that. And essentially, our world is essentially like, yeah, you know, if I go this way, it creates this set of problems, right? And I go that way, it creates that set of problems. And you can look at even some things that are, that most people have already made decisions on, like we talk about, you know, counterterrorism and strikes against terrorists and, the, and, and, and interrogation program and stuff. And, I, you know, you can put that down and you can explain to people where if you walk them through things and then they're like, okay, what's the decision? They're like, uh, there isn't a really easy decision. And it's, but like, okay, but you, in our world, you got to make the decision, right? And mm-hmm. so make it and you're going to get you know, you're going to get a problem from this side saying this is wrong or a problem from the other side saying...
0: Now, that can be yeah. hard to write. Writing, up, yeah, a, writing up an ethical dilemma where there is no good choice, there are only bad choices, but you still have to choose. That can be done, but it's difficult. And, yeah. I, and I wonder if that's why so many spy movies, even the good ones, even some of the La Corée ones that, that we tend to like, so many of them revolve around one of, of two tropes. One is the rogue officer or rogue operation. Yeah. I don't know about you, but in, in my shorter than yours career, <laughs> yeah, no I didn't room. have a lot of senior officers running divisions who were doing secret plots to assassinate analysts overseas because they <laughs> came across their plot to overthrow a government that was off the books. It, it just no. doesn't happen that often. If That ever. often? Right? It <laughs> doesn't happen at all. There <laughs> you I mean, go.
2: It, again, it's a centralized bureaucracy. Essentially, everything, yeah. you know, is, there's mistakes made and there's things that happen. But, yeah, the, the rogue...
0: And organization so, or the
2: rogue officer is
0: so common. Not a, Mission you know, Impossible movies. There's people who there's, there's bad
2: actors or. who do criminal acts and do the wrong thing, but right. uh, you know, hopefully they get caught and things. But it's not yeah. But people well, who operations. run
1: their operations and they run them like you know tightly, but they're their operations. They're sanctioned, right? I mean, right. It's right. Like, right. You
0: know, yeah. So that's one trope. The other trope that bugs me is it seems like before you establish a movie franchise about a spy organization or operation with the same team. It don't, instead of establishing what they can do and why they're so good, Mission Impossible has to start with a mole. It's always the mole. <laughs> and, yes, there's compelling human drama in mole stories. Locke, hurray did it perhaps better than anyone. But if it's either a mole or a rogue operation, you're actually leaving behind a lot of those compelling ethical dilemmas
2: you just mentioned. Yeah, that's right. I think that's fair.
1: Um, speaking of ethics, uh, I'm going to put my vote Uh-oh. on the table for favorite spy movie. Oh, please. Go ahead. Uh, the Lives of Others.
2: Oh, fantastic. Such a great movie. Fantastic.
1: Such a great movie. This is a movie also that transcends the genre. You don't uh, have to like spy movies to like oh, that it's movie. Incredible. So it's East incredible. It's incredible.
2: East Germany and yeah, sort of, exactly. the whole living under surveillance. What is it like to live in a in a police state? Yeah, and, and follows
1: the, the guy who is the uh the one who is uh, the monitor he's he's spying on this couple and you know and I, i'm not going to give it away for people because it gets into the human drama is profound in this but that's always struck me in addition to just being this incredibly moving heartbreaking at times story mm-hmm. as one that was also highly accurate insofar as that you had now about a different intelligence service right one that was a true police state the stasi in east germany but where the entire apparatus was organized around collecting intelligence on people who were threats to the state. It was systematized. It was routinized. It was bureaucratic. It was um, arbitrary, uh, oppressive, um, hidden. And they captured all of that in, 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 in this very intimate, small kind of movie, and that that always struck me as one that it was just pulling in all of these human dimensions into a story about really three or four people. Yeah, I'm glad you
2: brought that up, and, and you think about that because even in even in those kind of states, there's people who have, you know, that might make the right ethical thing, or there, you know, people are people, and so there's all those sort of. feelings. Yeah. So I can imagine, you know, I was in Moscow and you know, I had video and audio in my house and I had people tracking me all the time. And there was a couple times where, you know, I would run across my surveillance. By mistake, you know, vagary of the sort of movements, I'd end up in an elevator with one of my guys. And he would be looking at me and we're sort of quiet going down. The, as the elevators going down. And he'd be like, I was there when you bought your dog. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's mm-hmm. uh- <laughs> you know, we're watching you like, and one of them was like, you drive a little bit too fast. You should slow down, you know, like, okay, thanks. It really helps, you know. And I remember one time I, I, I was going across a big boulevard in Moscow, and a light changed, and I drove across, and a car came flying through and hit my car.
3: Hmm.
2: And it was a, a student at, at uh, Lamumba University, and there was a, you know, there's policemen at all the corners, you know, that they're sort of standing out there. And so this guy got out and started going on and on about how I had gone through the light and this and that, and the policeman was taking it on. And my, but I had had surveillance cars follow me, so my surveillance car just pulled over and they were standing on the sidewalk, and eventually the policeman looks over, and my surveillance, the surveillance guy goes, like, come over here. And so the policeman comes over, walks back out, grabs the other guy, <laughs> takes yeah. him away. He's like, because essentially that guy had gone through a red light and hit yeah. me, but he was starting in with, I had done something wrong. But the surveillance had seen the whole thing. and They, they were your witness. They, they may mm-hmm. hate me, and they may follow me, and they may see us as, you know, political enemies. But, you know, they knew. They had your back. <laughs> They're like,
1: no, no, it was not John's fault.
2: Yeah. We'll, uh, get, we'll get him for something else, but he didn't do this. yeah, one. yeah.
1: yeah. David, do you have a favorite that you want to put on the table?
0: Yeah, it, it, like you started out, it depends on how you define it. Yeah. So yeah. the the, 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 true the pure about espionage. Let's the say. pure yeah. spy movies. The the man who um, came in from the cold is just one of the best. Yeah. The spy who came in. It's great. Cool. It's great. Um, great book and great film. The the true story ones, uh, not the t- full fiction ones, but I, I like both Argo and Breach for for different reasons. Yeah. Um, but both of them have the human drama. For, for Argo, what captured me about that, it could have been developed better in the film, but I think it worked, was you have Tony Mendez going into Iran and having a very limited amount of time to teach cover to these people who have never had any training for it and to tell them what do they need. They need to reflexively know their name, their background. They need to walk and talk differently. And very limited scenes in the movie of that but very compelling of these people who are already at a stress level most of us can never imagine. And suddenly they have to shift their personality and become someone else in order to execute the operation. And I found that was good. And then, of course, Breach, the the story of essentially catching Robert Hansen at the FBI and just the personal dynamic with Hansen played brilliantly in that movie. Uh, Chris Cooper, I think.
1: Chris like, Cooper. Yeah, yeah, that what makes
2: me angry, though, because I was oh, in the yeah. middle of the whole Hansen thing. In fact, mm-hmm. I was there when he was arrested, mm-hmm. and it was – uh, we, had, we had FBI guys working with us inside CIA in, to, you know, c- capture Hanson. And it was a, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of stories there that still need to be told, and I hope we can make films out of these kind of things. But it, I said it makes me angry, but they did a nice job of figuring out a way in. So they took this young officer who happened to be put in with, with Hanson in his mm-hmm. office who supported mm-hmm. But having been in the middle of that and sort of running that case with a number of other people, that guy was essentially completely tangential. He had nothing to do with catching mm-hmm. hands, and he had no idea of what we were doing or how. He was just a young officer who just was sort of asked to Babysit and then report back to them. but they, So, movie wise, they did the right thing. It was a great yeah. way in. And that's the Ryan Philippe. If you were involved yeah. in the thing, you're like, well, how come that guy? Because it wasn't a documentary. He wasn't. <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly.
1: <laughs> Can I tell Hanson's story? Yeah. So, uh, this is years ago, um, but I uh, uh, knew a guy who was a, had just retired, was a senior operations officer. I'm sure you guys probably both know him. Uh, and he was out in Colorado. This is to tell you something about story when he was still in. And he had been out in Colorado with the Supermax. Uh, and as as he's getting ready to leave, like, his prison escort is like, uh, so you uh, you want to see Hanson? And he's like, he's you want me to, you want to show him to me? He's like, yeah, you want to see him in the cell? And he's like, can I go back in my car and get my sidearm? That's <laughs> <As> a joke. <laughs> and he's kind of half joke. And he's like, no, come with me. So he says, he does the story, he tells him, that he takes them to Hanson's cell, where he's, I guess, in, he's in isolation, he's in mm-hmm. solitary, and they slide open the door, uh, of the little window view on the door, and he lets him look in at him, and he said he's just... Pacing, back and forth, across the cell like Ho- you know, like a, like a caged animal, and he was just like, "Good," yeah. And what that you, was it. And I was, it doing? was that was that was quite a <laughs> quite a moment. But <laughs> yeah, want to come down and see the guy. Um, <laughs> uh, least favorites. Um, I'm going to throw my least favorite out. Okay. Well, maybe not my le- one of I my least think, favorites. Okay, a movie that I just really I saw and I and I, and I and I and I lived through this story in my own way too was Snowden. Oliver Stone's mm-hmm. Snowden. Yeah, I haven't mm. It's it terrible. Yeah. It's just, I mean, like, look, it's going to be a divisive opinion movie because it's about mm-hmm. a divisive character. But it just, it did, it, it was just so utterly paranoid and, mm-hmm. you know, w- incredibly one-sided, which is not to say I'm not taking a Listen, side, if, but like, if, this if, is a multidimensional if,
2: character if here. If Glenn and, Greenwald's yeah. involved, it's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I did not <laughs> even
0: see that. I, I it's just very dramatically unsatisfying. I just saw that as uh, essentially propaganda.
1: And that, that, to me, isn't as fun to watch. Uh, similarly. But Citizen Four, Laura Poitras' documentary, which is also has a very mm-hmm. strong point of view, is a great movie. I mean, it's
2: riveting. All right, so I have to watch both of them. I mean, it'll, it'll, I
1: think it will make people you know who worked in the NSA nuts because mm-hmm. it, it, it is it is holding up Snowden as a hero. But it's just so much more dramatically well-constructed and interesting and more tense. And, I mean, there are moments the like— The government
2: did such a poor job of dealing with the Snowden thing. Like, there's so much there that if it was— yeah, the government is often bad at these things, right? But, yeah, okay, so i got to watch those yeah, things. It's yeah, just, yeah,
1: it's also, and it's like, and he's just I don't know, the character, the way they develop the character is just, it was just, I did not like Snowden. Yeah. I, just, I didn't like it at all. Interesting.
0: I'm with you. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier I just hate the tropes of the mole hunts or the rogue operator or often the the, the rogue whole agency. And so any movie with those in them, I, I, well, I find it hard it comes to in love. Well,
2: if it comes in with a clear point of view. So I didn't see yeah. the one. There's one about a um, Guantanamo... Guy,
1: um, it was just the Jodie Foster movie, Ma- Mauritanian or whatever. The yeah, Mauritanian.
2: the Mauritanian. I don't want to get into it here, but I know people who spend a lot of time with that guy, and if they sat here with you and explain and talked it through, you'd be like, the guy's the guy's as guilty as can possibly be. But the story is told is like, oh my god, this poor innocent guy, because he's personable and interesting and speaks good English, and he meets with it and he talks things through, and you're like, oh, this poor guy's been treated bad. He's completely, you know. Taken, with, but you know anybody that knows the details and have spent time and you know walks you through it, you'd be like, oh my God, yes. Yeah, so, but but the movie ha- it comes in with a point of view. This, this Which sometimes to, is okay because it tells a story, right? Well, this
1: but, it, it sounds like it's like, you know, it would be like what, what critics would say, like, oh, typical t- typical liberal Hollywood treatment of, you know, of, of a subject. Maybe that's what some people would call it. But I'm, just to bring up but to I'm kind Rob. of liberal. <laughs> okay. So, like, I'm curious, like, going back to Rob Reiner, that's somebody who's walking in with a point of view about everything, yeah, you know? like, famously. So was that uncomfortable for you when he's asking you to sit down and talk about this? Did he seem like he had his mind made up about what the story he wanted to tell
2: well, I'm sure he had his mind made up, but his questions to professionals like General Hayden and Clint and I were, you know, what does this mean? What is okay. that? And we could explain things in a non-political sort of clear way. So, yeah, I mean, he he definitely came in hoping that what we would say would validate what he believes, and it sort of probably did. But our goal wasn't that. And I wasn't going to answer like I don't, you know, I'll answer truthfully to things. I'm not going to say you know, because your because your point of view is this, I'm going to then play along with that.
1: Yeah. Um, to expand the genre just a little bit, uh, there are, we, we've talked around this with the Tom Clancy series. You know, spy movies that are nominally spy movies, but really they're action adventure movies, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. kind of is largely the genre. Yeah, although I've and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Although I think because of streaming, and you've had like some of the La Corée, you know books made, like you know Night Manager and Little Drummer Girl, Girl and yeah. other things have been made into like true espionage. But if we have to go into that category, do you have like do you you like the Clancy movies? Do you have a favorite Clancy movie?
2: What's the one where they're in they're in Latin America and they it's got clear the Trump present Trump? danger? Yeah. it's
1: Iran Contra. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like it's that basically Iran Contra. Yeah, yeah right? that's
2: true. I like that. I like Red October. I mean, I liked most of the Clancy movies. The Clancy yeah. Show I thought was crappy. Oh, or at least yeah. the at least the first the first season was okay. Second mm. season was just and there ridiculous. are plenty video games
1: and I mean, yeah, I'm sure
2: it's it's a it's an industry in its own, and so there's there's probably good and bad stuff in there. But those the movies, you know, it's still enjoyable to watch them. You can turn them back on and
1: yeah, you can kind of they're compulsively watchable. Yeah, fun, mm-hmm. uh, clear and present danger story. Okay. So John Poindexter, who I know well and Ooh, wrote man. a book about years ago. Um, was at an event, uh, this is after he had, you know, gone through his, uh, his, as he said, the Iran-Contra business, as he likes to call it. Uh, and he's at this event at the uh, Naval Academy, uh, where, where, of course, he graduated, top of his class. Uh, plug for a great book, by the way, called The Nightingale Song, yes, which is I begging to be great. made into a film at some That's point a good by point. the late Bob Timberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was, i got to uh, write that down. Yeah, who's yep. great. Um, I work with his son now, actually, at the All post. Right. Um, but, uh, so... Poindexter is sitting at this table and Clancy's on the other side. And I guess and Poindexter's pretty quiet and pretty reserved. Like he's not a showboater kind of guy. And I guess Clancy is just kind of like holding court and it's Dom Clancy and I'm here at the Naval Academy. And he sees him across the table and he says, Admiral Poindexter, I just wanted you – and he says, I just wanted you to know I totally did not base clear and present danger on you and Iran-Contra. <laughs> and Poindexter's just like – uh-huh.
2: <laughs> sure. Like, there's a literally a much. national
1: security advisor trying to delete emails yeah. about mm-hmm. the covert support for Latin American rebels. I think, but it's, uh, yeah. Just a coincidence. Just, yeah. a coincidence. Just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. My favorite, by the way, in this category would definitely be Hunt for Red October. Yeah, that's great. Which is actually my favorite movie of all time. I really, honestly, I, I will go to the mat with this. I think the Hunt for Red October is a perfect screenplay. I can, I can find very few things wrong with it. Um, I can I can recite that movie back. Well, you can tell you were into it if
2: you know the screenplay. I mean, it's right. just <laughs> like, I mean,
1: it's amazing. And I, I remember when the movie came out, though, it had this. Um, it was I think it must have come out. I can't remember if the Soviet Union had fallen or not, but the Berlin Wall I think had come okay, down. Yeah. And and it's and, it, and you'll remember the movie starts with, you know, it's showing the sub the map and it's like you know like the quick introductory text and all that, and basically it says you know like and you know. And uh, in, the, in the you know in the in the days of Glasnost, you know, before Gorbachev came to power, and it tells you this quick little thing, like there was a submarine that went out. It says, and according to the U.S. Navy, everything you're about to see never happened. And so, it, of course, sets what you up with it, such up. a great way to set it up, of being like, you know, this is a story, but officially, no one will tell it. And the story I'd always heard, I don't know if it's apocryphal is that, you know, Clancy writes this book. The U.S. Naval Institute Press publishes Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's published by a small publishing house, like an academic publishing house, which Bob Timber used to work for. He ran proceedings for a while. Um, uh, And the story I've always heard is that, like, Reagan finds his way to it and is, like, photographed, like, carrying it, and so that adds Mm. its popularity. Yeah, I've heard that, too. But but that I guess that people in the NSC or maybe in the Navy... Came to um, Clancy and said, "How the hell do you know all this? Like, where did you get this stuff?" And he said, "It's just all in your archives. I just did the research." (laughs) And they're looking at him like, "Okay,
2: (laughs) we didn't realize how much like what did we put out there?" Um, So,
1: but to me, it's also just like it's such a great. I mean, it's just such a. Great cat and mouse story. Well, one of the things a, a
2: similar sort of thing we've been trying to work with, we we optioned a book on the Glomar Explorer story. Mm-hmm. And I think people That's have tried great. to bring that to a movie yeah. for years. And we yeah. worked with a really good you know, the guy did Highlander and a number of things to try, pitched that around, and we haven't had success. And I'm like, I don't get it. I can see that as a big oh, yeah. movie. I don't know for people who know the story. It's about you know, the CIA, you know, bringing up a Soviet sub that had, had gone to a nuclear sub that had gone to the bottom. You know, three and a half miles deep in the Pacific, mm-hmm. and the Soviets lost it, and were searching for it. And and the U.S. Navy and the Americans found it, and essentially created using Howard Hughes as a cover for you can't uh, make this yeah. up. And it's amazing for, it for a you know a, a, created a special ship that was supposed to look like a deep sea mining, you know, for nodules on the bottom of the ocean. The ship essentially created this big giant claw that would go down and pick this massive submarine up and bring it up into the belly of this. This starting. It's an incredible. And, that, and the vessel story. was
1: called the Glomar, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And, of course, the Glomar, that's where the Glomar, what's the word? Afterwards, like, you can either confirm or deny. Yeah, that's the classic from,
1: response to a Freedom of Information the, Act request. Right, so you got Glomar'd. That. Yeah, yeah. That we can neither mm-hmm. confirm nor deny that the yeah. records you seek exist. Yeah. It's actually a point of pride to get glomar as a journalist. It's like, <laughs> I know I'm on to something.
0: John, have you ever heard someone explain to you uh, why they haven't made that movie, others that you've talked to in Hollywood? Because that is one of those cases where you think it should have been done.
2: Well, there's a number of them. We also had the book for the uh, the stars on the wall at the agency book of honor mm-hmm. and stuff. Oh, the Ted Gup book. And there's yeah. some great stories in there. And we still might be able to take individual ones and see right. if we can't make those into shows. But of course, the, the book itself, the problem is everybody dies, and so everybody's like, "Well, we can't. How do we do make a show where everybody? Well, you can go back to when of they course died. You can. Of you course. can. Yeah. It's called Rogue
0: One, um, which is an <laughs> underappreciated spy movie oh, um, in the <laughs> sci-fi yeah. genre. But it's uh, yeah. inherently Wait, a the spy Star movie. Wars movie. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's about the spies who steal it's, the Death Star It's the plans. operation to
0: get to de- the Death yes. Star plans, and it involves spying, and one of the lead characters wow. is uh, ostensibly a rebel intelligence officer, although it's largely paramilitary. Uh, it's
2: so it's get... a
0: good movie from that perspective, even yeah. if you don't know the Star Wars universe, but guess what? Spoiler alert for everybody who isn't already familiar with Star Wars movies— virtually everyone dies at the
1: end and, and yet they, it's still a great movie. And that's alluded to in the very first Star Wars film, Episode mm-hmm. 4, when they show the plans and they say many rebel intelligence officers died bringing us this information. And everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh." And then they go on with it. But it's mm-hmm. kind of like it's a very it's it's very so I knew accurate. you guys were nerds. I knew you get We're, so <laughs> we're going to get there. So that's one of <laughs> you. you were done well, let, for let me, the many you walked let in. Let me go to
2: your question though, like why mm-hmm. you know, gets made, things don't get made. And, and and it's I guess it's not surprising. It has to do with sort of risk tolerance and things is it's surprising you know how many people we talk to and walk through stories and you think this is a this is a slam dunk this is easy and people are like ah and they've got to brief it to maybe their seniors and whatever is essentially i mean it's not surprising there's big money in this so so people are making big bets and spending a lot of money to make a movie and Nobody wants to be the one that says yes to something and then have that fail, and that's a big stain on their thing. And so it's almost easier. That's why you see so many, you know, Superman, you know, Spider-Man, fifteen or whatever. It's like, okay, I know if I say yes to this, it might be bad, but I'm going to make money because they all make money. And so there's sort of this risk, like something new, something different, to say yes to it can be a really sort of bold, risky type of thing. Like when I talk about the. About uh, Chernobyl, for example, someone who said yes to that was actually like probably putting their job at risk. Like, hey, this could be awful, and I'm going to be the one held responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it was a great hit. And so there's there's a there's a lot of that, and a lot of people you talk to, like I guess probably in any industry, is they they act as if they know the right answer. We're looking for this. We're not looking for that. Um, You know, there's not an interest in period pieces now. We're not interested in World War II thing. We're not interested, and essentially they're just sort of. Making that up, like there's no real data behind these things. There's not a lot. It's almost a feel, and you know, so, who is it? Was it um, Goldman or whatever said? You know, every, nobody in Hollywood knows anything. But right, it's sort of so you're you're gambling. Mm-hmm. It's a risk thing, and so lots of stuff that you and I might say this this it's clearly would be good. It, yeah, it gets turned down. But right, is people's amazing.
1: appetite for risk changed because there are these streaming platforms now? Like, I mean, you take a show like. You know, like a mayor of East Town or mm-hmm. something. I, mean, I don't know what how much money it made and how you made I guess you measure that maybe by subscriptions to HBO Max or mm-hmm. something. But like those movies and those shows aren't going to make the money that a, a Spider-Man franchise right. is going to make. But all of the top talent wants to do it because it's prestige right. drama and it's great and it brings in subscribers. So has that kind of changed the? So dynamic? I think studios
2: know They they want you know some prestige things to make, win awards, but they also want things that make big. Big money, but the industry's really gone they through want a content. sort of a. Yeah. a sport has of been smacked. So COVID then added to it. So as streaming came, it sort of pushed into the business and and sort of made movies harder to justify. Then COVID hit, right? And, and the cost of um, has changed the industry. But the big player that changed it was Netflix. So Netflix right. changed yeah. the whole. So Netflix came and said, Shane, this is a great story you have. It's wonderful. We're going to pay you this much of money, but we own it. Right, So you can come to them, they may give you a good chunk of money, but if this is the greatest show in the history of mankind, you're not mm-hmm. getting any back end. You're, whereas it used to be that was all part of the thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you're going to get paid here, depends, you're going to get a piece of the budget, some points. you're going to get the back end, yeah. you're going to have residuals, blah, blah. I don't even know what residuals means. But but N- Netflix came and said, nope, we're big, we're going to pay you one bit of money. If it stinks, great, you made some good money. If it's amazing, sorry, it's ours, we we'll are own it. And so that... That's changed a lot. So there's a lot of big players that knew how the industry worked, and the yeah. studios don't have the same kind of control like they used to. It's almost like just big banks now. They're not like a place you go to and makes the whole kind of thing. And so I think the industry's going through a big sort of shift and change.
1: The other thing that's interesting and different there too is that you can take. I mean, I think Squid Game, which I've not seen, is a good example of this. My understanding, from talking to somebody who knows this, is that Netflix basically spent nothing marketing them. The algorithm kind of found it. Mm -hmm. It became popular. It surfaces on the platform. It becomes like the biggest show they've ever done. So now you have that possibility, too, where someone makes a show that maybe no one will ever see, and then everyone sees it because it just takes off, and and, and they've built a content algorithm that can see where something is percolating. They grab it. They spend nothing to promote it and push it.
2: they've got all these foreign places where, you know, they might be Netflix India is making separate money that never shows up here, but they're doing really well. And so there's now companies around trying to do what Netflix does. So Netflix, you know, they control and they see all that data. They can see whether you looked at something, And if you scrolled and looked at it, what was your chance if you then looked at how long would you look at it? If you looked at the first episode but didn't go further, like they can start to pull all that together and put that kind of stuff together. So the beginning of the big data piece in Hollywood, now companies are trying to come in. And so even with some of the things we've done, we've talked to some people like, okay, you have this story about a spy case in India. We're going to have we're going to sell this way as a romantic thing and this way as a with an American twist, and this way is an Indian, we're going to put this fake thing up, and we're going to see how many people click on it, and the people click on it, how many say buy, and if you buy, it'll say, oh, it's not ready yet, and so we can mm-hmm. start to pull that data in to say, okay, let's let's make this more this way or that way, and so there's a lot of that stuff going on as, as people try to mitigate risk, I guess.
0: It's an inter- interesting, though, because I think that model will push towards lower-budget movies overall. Mm-hmm. That That is... You know, I don't see Netflix wanting to invest in the, you know, $200, $300 million movie the way, obviously, the Avengers will in the series or Star Wars will. And maybe that's a good thing because a lot of those do end up relying on the tropes. So you, if you're going to have a spy movie, what do you have to have? You have to have a big car chase. Well, we know if there's a car chase with a shootout, something has gone horribly wrong and you're not going to be a good intelligence officer the rest of your career. Whereas in these, that's considered a sign of success if you survive the car chase and kill enough people. Uh, for me... That's why I put Ronan on this list of a great movie. Yeah, I, I, like Ron, I love like Ronan. Like um, the car chase is actually one of the better car chase sequences I can recall. And yet for me, I still do the eye roll of, oh really, you know, you're, gonna, you're <laughs> gonna do that again?
2: But if you're gonna do it, that's the way to do it. <laughs> that's a good point.
1: Yeah, and yeah. It's, inter- it's interesting to the number of stars who will also do something as a prestige project and potentially, I would guess, take less yeah. money for it because they really love the show and they right. really just want to get thrown into it.
2: it, or you know, or they they want to do some things to make money, but they want to make, win some awards. On the other hand, it's like it's there's there's yeah. you know
1: yeah it's it's and this is something it's, it's 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 a system that has long been driven by the stars, but it, it but the but the changing platforms and the appetite for stories. I mean, it just creates yes. so many more avenues right. now, which I. Plot.
0: And it's and, and at that level, when you have an actor who's established, uh, they can do that. I mean, we know a former... There's only a few, yeah. We know a former intelligence officer. He worked with De Niro, who wanted to make The Good Shepherd. De Niro wasn't interested in making the most money on that movie. He wanted that story to be told. He wanted to be a part of it. And, in fact, had the officer in one of the, the scenes in the movie. But you can do that when you're De Niro. Mm-hmm. You can't do that when you're an up-and-coming actor. Uh, who may have some sway in hollywood but you you kind of need to ratchet that next one in yep. so you can keep your career going
1: david should we should we ask john uh, a question from the chatterbox
0: yes one of the things we do here is we have the so-called <laughs> chatterbox which has within it a number of questions which we pull out randomly and ask our guests so let's reach in the chatterbox ah we've already hit some of these inadvertently what common misperception about your profession or specialty? <laughs> Makes your blood boil.
1: <laughs> I feel like our whole conversation been about well, this. Well,
2: you know, our, our, my profession and your profession was essentially a secret one, so we should not be surprised that there are misperceptions, right? So, mm-hmm. in an open society, a, a secret organization is going to be one where people can place all sorts of views or political views or things. And you know, you and I, all of us see this on Twitter, right? So, like, uh, you know, it's amazing yeah. some of the people who come after you, thinking that you're like this baby killer or you know, all kinds of crazy things, and. You know, sometimes when I get sort of snotty and I'm like, well, luckily you live in a country where the people who work at the CIA are going to be working day and night to keep you safe, whether you like them or not. So, yeah, um, I think people forget that these institutions are manned by people, many smart people, many people who came in through a sort of rigorous process, you know, like any group of people. Some are more talented and less talented than others. Some of them, you know, more ethical and less ethical than others, even though we, I think, try pretty hard to be, you know, be very serious and very scrupulous about those kind of things, very strong sort of regulations. And so I think when people oversimplify things and assume things are either all bad or all great, too, like acting like, oh, you guys are heroes. Well, no, we're doing a job, and I think mm-hmm. we're doing it professionally and well. But that doesn't mean we're also, like you said, at the edge, you know, and we're dealing with people and people and countries and change your mind. Like we're talking about you know, Putin and, mm-hmm. and Ukraine. Does Putin even know what he's going to do, whether he's right. going to invade or not? Like, And so you see this thing, oh, the CIA got, got this wrong. It's like, I feel like saying, well, okay, well, who's going to win the election next time? Like, we have more data. You have a completely open system. You have every bit of information at your fingertips. You know, nobody predicts the future well because the world is complex. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to assume that that's the CIA's job to figure out where the world is going, you know, essentially we're doing the best with what we can to try to get, you know— a little bit of value add, and that's the sort of best that can happen. So it's sort of a simplification that bothers me. It's like, you know, it's all good or all bad. Like, listen, you got people working hard, people make mistakes, the world's complex, you're going to have successes and and failures. Mm
0: -hmm. That's one profession or specialty. But now your specialty is in the (laughs) movie-making business. So what is a misperception about that business that even in the last few years you've come to be annoyed by?
2: Wow, um, I guess the notion that it's that there's just big money in it, or it's easy. Like I, I think, you know, if you, hit... but I, that's not unusual, and I shouldn't have been surprised by that, because essentially it's been like that forever. People make their way to Hollywood thinking they're going to be stars or make a bunch of money, and oftentimes it's, shattered or most of dreams. the times it's <laughs> shattered dreams, and not and not the case. It's just a, it's a much slower, longer business. I mean, even if you. Put in the time. We've been doing this for three, three and a half years now, and we're we're having quote unquote success. And we've signed things. We have moved, we's going forward, but we haven't made money. Like until something gets made, distributed, and out there, does does money come in? And so, luckily, we have you know a little bit of an investment, so we can sort of put food on the table. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But you love the work. It's oh, it's like. fun. It's
2: creative. It's fun. It's really interesting. We meet smart and interesting people in a different thing. But we're still talking about the world that I, you know, came from. Um, we can deal with like you know, you're a writer. You're doing a book. Like I can talk to you guys. Yeah. When I was in the agency, I never, never once ever, spoke to a journalist ever. Mm. And now that I'm out, it's you guys that are the most interesting because you sort of live the same. life. yes, you know? you're interested Very in issues. You yep. often travel overseas. You try to understand cultures. You try to dig into things, and so in many ways. Dealing with journalists is sort of a more natural thing for someone who came out of the intelligence business and it's the same with these writers and creative people like like, I like being around smart creative interesting people who are just interested in the issues. It's people who don't care. Those are the ones I'm not interested in dealing with. Yeah.
1: Well John Seifer this has been super fun. Thank you for coming Mm -hmm. in here. It's been great for all three of us to be together. Absolutely.
2: And uh, uh,
1: we will look forward to eventually seeing one of your movies. Up on the the big or the small screen. I'll
2: get you guys involved somehow, either either through your content or we'll get you out there as an expert in some fashion. We We look look
1: forward to it. And definitely get us like VIP. And
2: Alex let us down. I just want to make that very, very clear. Well,
0: and you you gotta pay for the dinner because we don't want to have the experience (laughs) of working with you and having to pay for ourselves. (laughs) You are
2: definitely paying for the price. Thank you, John. (laughs) Thanks, John. (laughs) All right, my pleasure.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.